Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today we'll discuss the latest updates from across the country, focusing on the battle in the Donbass and the emergence and implications of partisan warfare in occupied Hazan. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 9th of June, day 106. And today, I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, and Francis Sternley, Assistant Comment Editor. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. A lot of fighting in the Donbass, in that seven and next pocket. Reports are that, although there's there's lots of engagement going on, most of the Russian assaults have been driven back. They are still making very, very, very small incremental gains, sometimes as little as, as a kilometre a day, and at great cost in terms of personnel and equipment. So a lot, a lot of activity there in the pocket. There's also the latest British military um, defence intelligence assessment saying that actually just slightly still in the eastern Donbass, but just to the site to the northwest of Severodonetsk, the town of Izium, which is a, a major sort of transport hub, gateway, if you like, into, into the Donbass. Russia tried to push south from there in April and, and was repulsed. The, the, the ground there lends itself to the south and east that's in Ukrainian hands. The, the ground there lends itself to the defender and Russia was, was repulsed quite, um, quite emphatically. Now, it's about eight weeks on from from that. And as we've discussed before on the pod, it takes about six to eight weeks to reconstitute a force. Reconstitution being both both re-equipping the lost lost tanks and armoured vehicles and and personnel and reorganising the structures. If they've worked out that actually having an armoured heavy force is not good, you need more air defence or you need more engineers at the front or something else. So to reorganise your grouping as well, is very very important. So that that action of reconstitution cannot just be done overnight. It needs needs a lot of time. You know, six to eight weeks is a, is a decent decent spread of time. So it would be about now that we would expect some other force to be available in that region. And the MOD assessment is that the Eastern Forces Group 
has now started moving again in the Isium area and might try to uh, all undoubtedly look to, to push south. Now, you may remember when when Russia was pushed out of the north of the country from the Battle of, of Kiev and, and the north and the east around Sumy, um, and and said, and Putin then changed the objective and said, said actually, all along it had been it had been the Donbass. There were fears that Russia might try and push hard south from Kharkiv through Izium and south and north from Mariupol and do a big enveloping action to then slowly wear down the Ukrainian forces inside that bubble. That never came to pass, obviously. And it's been over the last few weeks, it, it's slowly eroded further. The Russian aims down to just taking the, the Severodonetsk pocket, which they've shown extremely uh, uh, hard. Uh, it's hard not to crack, although it does look like the city is is now in mostly in the vast majority in Russian hands. But if this new push, for, if there is going to be a new push from Izium, and if uh, and if it is in, in some capacity of a reconstituted force, that might that might be the last kind of hail mary, if you like to use a use an American expression, the last gasp hope before the whole Russian army there culminates. Culmination being when you don't have to retreat, but you're no longer strong enough to be able to continue offensive action. So trying to push south from, from Izium, it seems a bit of a, a a bit of a bit of an attempt to, to try something different. Now that's not that's not bad. A great great military expression is you, you don't reinforce failure. So if Russia's not going well, the attack is not going well around Severodonetsk, it wouldn't be unsurprising to try something else. But in and of itself, just just pushing down from from Izium, if there's not a a concurrent push up from the Mariupol region or Kazan region, that the forces in the south that seems fairly static, you've got to ask, well, what what does it do on it on its own? It it all strikes, speaks of a, a kind of desperation. I'm not suggesting that that Ukraine is having all its all its own way, not nothing like that at all. I mean, they are struggling for uh, in terms of casualties as well. So it does look like the two the two forces are grinding to some kind of culminating point for both of them. Um, and I'll just uh, I'll just take a little pause there. Well, just quickly on that, Tom, you, you mentioned casualties at the at the end at the end of your answer. Um, we had some information from the Ukrainians today about their, their casualties. Can we compare that with the Russians? What what's the latest? What do we know about the casualties in this ongoing uh, battle for the Donbass? It's extremely. It's a fool's game to try and compare casualty figures because we we simply don't know them, and uh, we don't know them because it, it's it's a very confusing situation. There's a lot of open source references about casualty figures on both sides but you, you've, you've always got to take these with a with a pinch of salt uh, the ukrainian um, government have been very canny about their handling of statistics they've put out probably more than russia and i think the consensus view is that they are probably more accurate um but we still still shouldn't take them all at face value president Zelensky said last week he was on a visit to the region he said that that at times, Ukraine have lost between sixty and one hundred soldiers a day, uh, killed and five hundred wounded. I mean, these are these are colossal figures. So it'd be it's very difficult to compare figures. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Ukraine is saying Russia has lost over thirty thousand soldiers. I think most Western officials would say that's possibly a little bit toppy, but I mean, with, within within fifteen or twenty percent, so pr- probably over twenty thousand on the on the Russian side. But it's very difficult to compare because you, you're not. We, we simply don't know what we are comparing. Very simply, but all the reports are, and we can see the evidence with our with our own eyes. And the the little snippets of prose, more than the actual numbers, will show us that this is an extremely tough fight, and 
both sides are are losing huge numbers of fighters, both killed and wounded. It's having a massive effect on both. We can see that from the Russian side that they're having to call up very old uh, pieces of equipment, T-62s, and broaden the age bracket upon which uh, within which men are expected to serve in the Russian in Russian society. On the Ukraine side, they've said that their problems are not numbers. They've got, uh, they say, about 700,000 fighting age males available in the country, a huge number, many of whom have never picked up a gun in their in their lives. But Ukraine have said that their training pipeline is is the is the difficult bit there. And they and they've said that at the moment there's a month long wait to join the Ukrainian army. And that's not the lack of volunteers. That is um, that's the training pipeline and the, the, the people to actually do that training and the locations and the, the ammunition and the weapons that can be spared to do the training and so on and so forth, trying to get them through that through that pipe. So both sides are experiencing huge numbers of casualties. Both sides are if not struggling, then finding it a real challenge getting uh, trained, well-motivated, knowledgeable people up to up to and, and into the fight. So it's both sides are having having extreme problems here. I don't think it will come down to sheer numbers. Obviously, Russia is a, is a much bigger country than than Ukraine in terms of, of of citizens in the population. So it's just too simplistic to say, well, give them all a gun and Russia's going to win. I mean, it, it doesn't come down to that because so much of it comes down to the, the training and the, and the morale. You, Ukraine obviously fighting for the homeland, much more motivated than, than Russia. But there's a, there's a leaked report out, or not a leaked report, but, but my colleague Kim Sengupta, the, the independent who's in Ukraine, has, uh, says he's, he's managed to see a, an intelligence report from Ukraine saying that there are morale issues in some areas that Ukraine is outgunned 20 to 1 in artillery and there have been reports of desertions as well which we've also seen on the Russian side so a confused picture not unexpected I, I would venture I mean this has been this has been over three months now of very very hard fighting a very very grim fighting the art artillery there that's just just smashing the place up so I don't think we should be surprised at some of these alleged numbers or anecdotal reports but it it is occurring on both sides, and they both seem to be grinding towards at least a pause, if not if not a stalemate. Thanks, Dom. Francis, can I bring you in here? There's, so Dom's talked about the fighting on the front in the east in in the Donbass. There's also been news of um, Ukrainian partisan attacks uh, in in places under Russian occupation. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's been happening? Yes, in light of what um, Don was saying there about morale, I think um, some listeners will recall that very early on in this conflict, we, we spoke about the city of Kurzon, um, which was one of the first to, uh, to, to fall to, to the Russian forces and said that this should be a... a, a a continued focus for us in terms of measuring the scale of Ukrainian resistance to uh, to the Russians. And uh, we have, of course, commented on that city many times since then. But um, on this question of Ukrainian morale and on this question of, of Ukrainian resistance, there's been some interesting developments in the last 24 hours. So um, we understand that Ukrainian civilians living under the Russian occupation um, have blown up a cafe close to the puppet government's headquarters in the city um, in what appears to be the first terror attack, if we can articulate it as such, um, in occupied territories. Um, at least four people have been injured um, 
And it's understood that this shop was regularly frequented by Russian soldiers. And it's being seen as a signal that there are growing signs of a resistance movement inside the swathes of, of, of Ukrainian controlled territory, of, of, of territory controlled by Moscow um, in, in Ukraine. Um, Russia, unsurprisingly, have described this as a terror attack um, and are um, essentially saying that they're going to capture the uh, perpetrators. We have the comments of a Ukrainian military official who said that um, it's it's often used, as I say, for, for by, by Russian leaders who have their lunch there, um, and 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 did so have, and have since the first days of the of the occupation. And and I quote: He says, "Today's explosion shows that the fight will not stop for a second or a minute. Kurzon is Ukraine." Now. Um, we have an article, an extended um, piece of analysis on this on this story, and um, it's riffing off some some research also has been done by the Economist. And our understanding is that there is now a special operations forces um, that are steering res- the resistance movement in Ukraine. They're doing so um, from by, by by sort of three different sections. So there's sort of a military action section, a support operations, and psychological warfare. And of course, uh, this is now going to be yet another front um, in, in this conflict. We've talked about um, the energy front, the military front, of course, the food crisis. And now uh, we come to, um, to, to resistance and, and, and partisan warfare. I'm sure many listeners will be aware of just the, the, the significance of partisan warfare in conflicts in the 20th century, particularly the Second World War. Um, of course, the French resistance is, is, is very famous, but um, there are other numerous examples. One that springs to mind to me is, is the Cretan resistance um, uh, in, 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 in the war, which uh, show just the, 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 the fierce challenges that the German occupying forces had, um, not only controlling what was quite difficult terrain, but also a people who were fiercely resistant to occupation and had historically um, been so. Um, and, and I think that that's relevant to this, is that some you know, his countries have histories of being occupied many, many times. In Crete, they'd been occupied by the, by the Ottomans previously, and it was part of their, their ingrained almost psychology to resist. One could say that perhaps there were elements of that in... Um, amongst certain uh, populations in Iraq and Afghanistan that have historically been used to resistance of foreign occupiers. And so, um, and, and as I say, I think there are echoes of that in Ukraine. This is a country that has been contested and has faced um, numerous struggles in its history, um, been occupied by almost every uh, Central European, Eastern European power at some stage. And so um, it is part, I, I would argue from, from certainly the reading that I've done, that this is part of the, of the psychological makeup almost of, of large numbers of the Ukrainian population. Um, and so partisanship, resistance, which of course undermines uh, the morale of occupying soldiers and it also fundamentally uh, emphasizes a dividing line between us and them. It means uh, that, that cooperation between the two sides is less likely. They're treated with mutual um, distrust. Uh, that this, this, this is going to be something that we're going to, to, to see much more of and, and ultimately um, have to draw more attention to. And I spoke the other day about um, what we understand that even in the darkest days of the war, in those, in, in those early weeks, that, that, that Ukrainian 
um, desire to um, to resist is it has has uh, and and the belief in in total victory long term has never faltered below about seventy percent. And again, I, as I say, I think this speaks to to the scale of of of, of the Ukrainian resistance. What's happened, and of course, this is was hugely unexpected by Putin and has 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 been a huge thorn thorn in his side. So as I say, I think very interesting developments. I'm sure this is the beginning of what will be a more concerted um, effort by the Ukrainians to show that um, no Russian is safe, even in territory that is believed to be occupied. Um, Dom Nichols, can I bring you in here just on this issue of partisan warfare? As a, as a former soldier, how, how, what, what kind of issues does this pose for an occupying force? And, and, and how, how might the Russians be thinking about this? It's, it's a really tricky part of, of operations. I mean, the old days of so all the oil paintings that we see dotted around the dotted around the place in the museums and what have you of a, of a nice line of soldiers over here wearing one coloured tunic and a nice line of soldiers over there wearing another coloured tunic and they go at each other with horses and cannon and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, that's history. Uh, very rarely does it actually look like that. I probably, especially these days. Um, as soon as you start involving civilians and operating in in urban areas and operating in and amongst the people. It's, it gets very, very tricky and very, very nasty very quickly. And so the lessons that Francis was just identifying, the, the lessons from the French resistance in the Second World War, and we were talking about the Special Operations Executive a couple of days ago, is when you, when you as a civilian, you start involving yourself in, in military activity, you first of all, you cross a line. When you, when, you take, when you take up arms, you become a combatant and you therefore surrender some of the privileges that you should enjoy as a civilian under the Geneva Conventions. So there are there are reprisals and you're opening yourself up to all sorts of um, legal challenge up to and including death on the battlefield, but also the death penalty in in some jurisdictions. But also it it involves society in the fight to a degree that it that it did not hitherto been so for example this this cafe that that was um that was blown up and the four injuries in in Kherson. so what's the what is russia going to think about that well it, it doesn't take much it wouldn't take many of these attacks plus a bit of propaganda and they're already halfway there with nazis and and um and drug dealers and all the rest of it they're already well down the route to dehumanizing ukrainian society so a few of these attacks and a few people hurt or killed and suddenly the Russian soldier, um, let's, let's say an, an ill-disciplined, maybe ill-educated soldier, is going to look at every Ukrainian civilian as a potential threat. So it, it wouldn't be too difficult for the threat against the risk of of every every Ukrainian civilian rising. And we've seen what's happened in Bucha and Irpin to the northwest of Kiev. We've seen what happened when a when an ill-disciplined mob is let loose in the civilian population i think you run the risk of uh, or history tells us that you do run the risk of um of that becoming a more a greater experience and so there's there's risks there for the civilians also as you um as a, as a civilian society starts to move into this area of armed action and again we saw this in the second world war there are, there are so not only reprisals from the from the from the military force in this case Russia against those resisting but there there could be reprisals within Ukrainian society as well so again from the second world war we saw 
anyone who was deemed to be collaborating with the Nazis, um, and in some instances, women who had relationships with German soldiers uh, were occasionally meted out. Had they were shamed, there was violence. Um, so a, a society can fracture or, or can remember these these episodes, and the, and these these ripples can last long after the long after the conflict. So so there is a great history of of the effect resistance movements can have. A very small very small number of people can have a, a much larger effect and against a much better equipped force if you start. And we've seen some of these posters around Ukraine, but if you start putting the the seed, the idea in the Russian soldiers' heads that they are all targets and that anybody could be after them, and there could be somebody with a with a a knife around the next corner or you know, just just at, at any time it, it could it could come come from anywhere, it increases the risk to all civilians, and um, and it increases the risk also as these things as, as violence just. Just, just makes people it pushes people into a, into a harder position i think before before it gets better before people are able to lift themselves out of that out of that hell and and come to an accommodation and so the the risk of reprisals and violence and ugliness spreading out throughout society is increased by these attacks now i'm not saying it doesn't have military utility as as i as i've described and i'm not i'm not suggesting it it shouldn't happen um i'm just saying there are there are impacts that will that will be widely felt. There are many ways of of conducting partisan warfare. There are many ways of resisting, and I would I would urge anybody listening to have a look at a film called How to Start a Revolution by um, an old chum of mine at the BBC called Rory Arrow. Um, Rory, he's spelling I think R U A R I D H as opposed to Rory R O R Y, but anyway, Rory Rory Arrow. He um, God, it doesn't help if you can't pronounce your r's so i apologize but war we Awo is the is the chap to go and speak to follow him on twitter and he made a film how to start a revolution with a boston professor sadly no longer with us but gene sharp who is a a great thinker in peaceful resistance uh and revolution how to start a revolution and he was he had a almost a checklist that that any any uh, resistors would would uh, do well to to go and have a look through, and there's a little film. I mean, Rory's Rory's film is, I think, about forty odd minute, minutes long, but there's a there's a much shorter trailer. You'll be able to find it uh, on YouTube and, and all the rest of it. And and Gene Sharp was suggesting that you you use colours and symbols. Now it helps if you've got a national flag, obviously, but but sometimes just showing that national flag can get you into trouble. So if you have a if a, a colour that uh, you know we've all heard of the, of the colour revolutions, but a colour around which you can coalesce and just display in that colour, if it's just you know, wearing it as a as an item of clothing. Um, which is in in and of itself fairly fairly innocuous. You, you, you'd be hard pushed to be uh, to be brought to task by by a, uh, um, an invading soldier for wearing a a shirt or a t shirt or something in a, in a colour or a symbol. Colours and symbols are very important. Um, use of the English language because it's an international language. So if you are resisting and if there are TV cameras present and you're shouting at your at your oppressors, even though they might understand not understand a word you're saying, the international audience, if they get to see that film, will. So Gene Sharp suggests use of English language, um, colours and symbols, and then. When it comes to resisting in the, the classic line of imagine the sort of security forces all, all dressed in black with riot shields and what have you, and their masks on, and they all look look like automatons. And you don't know who they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Push to the front of those of those um, confrontations before it gets 
violence, but push to the front of those confrontations the people who who most who, who are as far away from being a so a, a young fighting male as possible. So old women, for example, Gene Sharp was saying, get them at the front, talking to these soldiers, saying, why are you here? Why are you in my country? Handing out leaflets, handing out flowers, and things like this. And and it's a real juxtaposition in what that that those security force personnel would expect. And who's going to be the first one to? to fire a baton round at, a, at an old woman. So these kind of things. Gene Sharp, How to Start a Revolution, fascinating film, um, a book, book as well. Uh, and Rory Arrows, the guy to, the guy to go to on that. Just, just one thought that, that, that came to me when, whilst Don was talking about peaceful resistance. I've spoken several times on the podcast about uh, the Czech Republic uh, or Czechoslovakia as it was then and as when it was behind the Iron Curtain and very struck by the mentality of Václav Havel, who uh, was one of the, uh, he was, many listeners will know that he w- became president after the Iron Curtain collapsed, um, but he was prior to that uh, sort of seen as one of the cultural critics of the regime. And his mentality was that you y- you just do not accept that these occupiers are can ever be your your friends you know bear in mind the iron curtain of course was was up for for a long time and it's slightly different to to what's happened in in ukraine here um but even so it it, it speaks to this idea of, of 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 peaceful resistance that you just never are willing to accept uh the the uh the the, the relationship that the Russians effectively because it was the Russians then it's the Russians now uh, are, are trying to impose upon you and and that in many ways can can be enough over a long period of time of course in the case of of, of Czechoslovakia it was decades um, that it, it just it, there is never that inter- that integration desired by the occupier is never able to take place and and as and as long as wide percentages of the public know. That they are that there is still a large percentage of their fellow citizens who are not willing to see themselves as anything other than occupied. Then that can that in 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 when we're talking about victory long term, it's those kind of divisions being maintained over a long period of time that will prove crucial. Now, of course, I think we can all say that we hope that the war in Ukraine will end much much sooner and there won't be some sort of iron curtain drawn across part of Ukraine that, that of course President Zelensky wants wants to go for all out victory and I think that you know in the context of everything that we've talked about in this podcast over the last few weeks he's there's 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 many reasons why that's a that's a good thing to do but as I say I, it, it's important when you're in these long protracted conflicts where attritional warfare psychological as well um, plays a role then partisan warfare has this impact of, 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 of keeping the us and them alive so that there is never this ability as desired by the occupier to, to, um, to, 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 to essentially lead to, to integration. And that's before one even gets into the resources that are taken away from the front line when you feel that there are partisans who need to be um, potentially suppressed in other parts of the country. But I'm sure that Dom can talk a little bit more about that and the, the way in which partisans can drag resources away from 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 the front line well yeah it comes back to that the simply not not knowing not only the ground will favor the defender they will have so the partisans would have sucker from um they'd have their own networks they know where they can go and hide where they can hide weapons how they can pass messages they'd have a, a whole network of people who are willing to take greater or or, or less um risk 
uh, it, both in handling messages and weapons and, and providing food and shelter and so on and so forth. Uh, so they'd, they'd know how to use the environment around them. And then a, uh, a supply of, of weapons or improvised weapons, and Ukraine showed themselves to be very adept at improvising weapons, especially with 3D printers, those mortars we've seen dropping from drones. Uh, but the, the, you can, for a very, as I say, for a very small small investment in people, have a, have a much larger effect. You can hold up uh, much larger forces. It all depends on the on the on the area, the the physical area you're, you're working in, and what you're what you're trying to achieve, and and what the enemy are trying to achieve as well. But um, but yes, for a small investment can have have large results. But it it does rely on it completely relies on internal security, and this is why. Again, we were talking about the other the other day the special operations executive. The book I suggested, MRD Foot. Um, MRD Foot's book on the uh, SOE is, is fascinating and a very good historical record. The the need for small groups, a cell structure. So you know, if you're a if you're a partisan, you know very very few other, few people around you in the cell. So that if you're compromised, if you are captured and, and tortured, you're not going to be able to give away many other people. But also, if someone else is captured, they're not they're not likely to know to know you. So it can be quite a lonely place because you don't you don't obviously and overtly and regularly get demonstrations of support from the people around you but it can if you have that discipline you have that that internal structure then it can have a have a great effect the the oppressing force will put a huge amount of effort into trying to break these structures down and infiltrate them and undermine them and so on and so forth so it is a very a very lonely and dangerous place to be um but i don't i don't think we're there yet in in Ukraine. Um, this might be the side of it. This, these couple of attacks that we're seeing, but in terms of resistance, we ha- we certainly have seen have seen that. And this is that that's the resistance is the shallow end of what we're talking about here. With these posters going up around town, something quite violent actually. Some of the um, some of the posters you've seen of of uh, soldiers sort of sort of dead with their throats throats cut and the message saying you know you're next or it could be tonight and these kind of these kind of messages taped to trees. And um, and otherwise sort of print, printed and, and stuck up on walls and what have you. I mean, these are all. It's all very psychological. It, it, it once you get inside the head of the of the oppressor, you can have um, have all sorts of you, you can create havoc in there. But as I say, it comes comes back to what what is then going to come back on the on the civil society. So a fascinating area, lots to to dig into. Um, we will be watching this with great interest. And um, yeah, anyone who's interested in those 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 areas. Do go and have a look at those those bits and pieces that we've uh, pointed you to. Can we move on briefly and just talk about air combat? Um, listeners might have seen this viral video of an incredibly low-flying Ukrainian fighter jet. Um, the, the jet is flying so low, it's almost grazing the trees um, beneath it. Um, it's a Ukrainian Su-25 attack jet. Um, Domin Francis, um, could you just explain a bit what, some, some of the details about this? Why, why, why is it flying so low? What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to hide. Basically, look look at a chunk of air from the ground from the ground up. You either want to be really, really high, so that munitions fired from the ground just just simply aren't going to reach you. Um, but then you're in the realm of of long range air defence will reach you these missiles. Um, so if you can't be really high, you need to be really, really low and low lower than treetop height, preferably lower than building height, so that anyone trying to track you. If you um, if you're trying to shoot something either with a with a gun or a missile or, or or any type of munition, you first of all need to need to see it, then you need to track it, and then you need to fire, and your weapon needs to 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 
cover the distance, obviously, between you and you and the target. So if there's anything in the way there, trees, ground, hills, buildings, then it's going to hit that rather than the rather than the aircraft. So we call this thing the threat band. The, th- the threat band is is from just a very few hundred feet above the ground up to thousands of feet. And that's where you do not want to be in an aircraft, either a fast jet or a helicopter, because that's where you you can be reached by things on the ground um, and you are you are not hidden by anything. So so the idea is to be either very, very high or very, very low. Now, a lot of jets these days, a lot a lot of sorry, air defense missiles can go as high as high as a jet. They're few in number. These are very sophisticated systems, so they're quite expensive. There's not many of them around, but but they are there. And actually you're much better off now. You're, these were jets that you're talking about, but certainly as far as helicopters were concerned, I used to fly helicopters for for the British Army, and we would be down on on the ground, sometimes sometimes physically touching the ground. Although well, you don't really want to do that because you can easily stick it in a rabbit hole, and then you get in a whole world of hurt. But you know, as low as you could possibly be using the ground, as an armoured vehicle would basically, um, using the the folds of the earth, using hard cover, using trees, using using buildings, so that if anyone sees you, by the time they've they've heard you and they've looked around and they catch a flash of something, you're gone. You're behind another hill, behind a building, behind a tree, what have you. And even if they manage to get a shot off, um, they the, the chances are it's going to impact something other than you. Uh, and of course, you got if if there's a radar looking for you, the amount of ground clutter, so the other the, all the stuff that the radar return is going to pick up, or the radar is going to pick up and then return to the to the receiver. So there's there'll just be a whole mess on the on the radar screen screen. And you, you're going to hide in that. You're just not going to be seen. So very low. It's dangerous. You know, the ground's down there. Cumulo, cumulo nimbus, nice, nice big clouds. Can't really hide in them other than from the uh, from visual. But uh, cumulo granite, as we used to call it, you know, you don't want to fly into that either because that's going to ruin your day quick smart. So flying low and fast is is uh, is good, but you've got to be absolutely on on the ball. And in in single air, uh, single piloted aircraft, if you are spending a lot of your time flying the thing then you're not doing your mission you know the, the aircraft is just a means of getting you to a place to to conduct your mission either to look at something or to destroy something so actually flying the stick and poling aspect of, of flying needs to be second nature you don't need to be or you should not be totally absorbed in flying and avoiding the ground and avoiding trees and buildings you need to be just just use doing that naturally so you can then conduct your mission so it is very very dangerous to fly low but it is often the safest place to be i would just add one one thing to what don was saying there is that of course there's all of the military benefits of 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 having a an effective um air arm as part of your um your uh, um, armed forces but it's also the psychological impact i mean the fact that the this, so many months into the conflict the ukrainians are still ha- have an effective um, air arm is significant when people civilians soldiers see that they still have planes that are up in the air that has a huge morale boosting impact as it always has in in the history of warfare um, and i don't think it should be underestimated many many um, testimonies that one reads from soldiers in many conflicts in the 20th century um, comment on the fact that when they lose air superiority or they they don't they no longer see their own planes in the sky but they do see the enemies that is one of the biggest morale losers um, that they that they that they sort of reflect upon it's often saying you know, where are our our um, yeah, where is the RAF or, or where is the Luftwaffe? Where is the etc.? You know, it, it, it's always lamenting this loss. It's, it has a huge impact, and and of course, um, the the um, 
uh, air forces have been very significant in this conflict, not only for destroying the, um, the, the tanks of which we see numerous um, examples of footage of, but also, of course, the drones, which we've talked about many times as well, have been absolutely essential for um, destroying key targets, um, uh, many of those being um, um, t- tanks and, and armour as well. So um, I think that there will be a lot to be written about um, it, when when this war is over, about uh, the, the influence and significance of, of air, aerial combat and 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 and, and bombing etc and and how and what the lessons are for 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 for, for future future wars because um, I think there'll be many people reassessing um, how we look at, at, at particularly drones as I say but other lessons as well because clearly um, the sort of 20th century tile type of strategy adopted by Vladimir Putin in the invasion has is not um, fit for the 21st century with the kind of technology that we have in, in in terms of aircraft but also in terms of drones so yes it's it's it's, it's very um uh, very significant i think and one w- which will, will will be commented upon a lot in the future thank you francis and thank you dom i think it'd be good to uh head towards the end of today's episode and we've got a question from uh ritas i i hope i've pronounced that right uh, ritas who uh, mentions how on yesterday's podcast we talked a bit about the differences of opinion within Ukraine on Boris Johnson, Olaf Scholz, um, uh, and they're wondering what kind of recognition or how, how is President Biden thought of? Uh, the Americans have given a, a, a huge amount of um, support to Ukraine. How? I mean, I, I guess I have two questions. I don't think we're, we're able to completely speak for Ukrainians on this. So my question to you is more within within Europe. What what's the sense of of Biden's involvement? Does he get enough credit? And if we if, and of course, again, if you're Ukrainian and listening, and, and do you have thoughts on this? Would be very interested to hear to hear to hear your thoughts. Yes, this is a very interesting question. Um, we've spoken about on the podcast uh, the manner in which, as you allude to there, um, that a figure like Boris Johnson has has been uh, really widely celebrated um, in in Ukraine due to his uh, proactiveness in the early uh, days of the conflict and obviously in the weeks preceding it. Um, actually, as, as an addition to that, um, there's a story in our paper today about how uh, he's been officially inducted into Ukraine's Cossack community um, and given a new name that pays homage to his uh, his freedom-loving hair. Um, and uh, there's been a local mural um, that's been painted um, as well. And so if people want to, to take a look at that, um, then, then, then they can do. Um, and it, as I say, it speaks to um, traditions that we've seen before that have, have, have grown up when um, uh, political leaders who have been heavily involved in foreign conflicts have have been celebrated by people that obviously Kosovo being a famous example with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. Um, so th- there's that example. Olaf Scholz, as you say, has 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 uh, is receiving similar recognition, albeit for uh, the opposite reason. Um, usually condemnation or or, or um, being uh, the butt of the butt of jokes. But Joe Biden is is interesting because we haven't seen those kind of murals. We haven't seen that that widespread um, celebration of his approach to the conflict. And I think probably part of the reason for that um, from the from the Ukrainian and Europe, wider European perspective is that it's very hard to be celebrated when one's position is seen as being uh, rather um, un- uh, moderate at times, harder in others. It's inconsistent, fundamentally, I think, is the perception, perhaps unfairly, um, 
Uh, and and so it's much easier for one to rally behind somebody who has a consistent um, policy or a consistent message, whether that be uh, or or rally against, should I say, in the name of Olaf Scholz. Um, whilst you know we've talked about in the past how how um, Joe Biden made certain certain remarks early on in the conflict that that could be seen as uh, as, as making it easier for Putin to do certain things. He seems to be um, uh, President Biden seems to be marking several lines in the red lines in the sand about what about the the, the extent to which. Um, NATO would be willing to intervene, um, and which was dubbed unhelpful. Um, since then, of course, we've seen that they've provided you know, essential weapons in, in, in vast amounts of funding. And I think that the, the scale of the commitment has has been seen to increase. But for whatever reason, you're right. And the, and, and um, listener is right in to say that there hasn't really been this um, almost cultural special recognition for uh, for the American president, as perhaps there was in the case of uh, Ronald Reagan during the Cold War, and as I say, Bill Clinton during um, the crisis in, in Kosovo in the 1990s. It's an interesting phenomenon. As I say, it, part of it, I think, is due to his policy decisions. And part of it also is, is, is let's face it, um, I don't think um, Biden is a great charismatic personality um he's he's not got quite the same level of uh of star power i think um when he gives speeches etc and i i know we've got a, a, a wide american uh, uh listenership for, for which i i apologize i'm just making a, <laughs> a piece of analysis that's been made by many many others um, he hasn't quite got that cut through i think that many previous american presidents have had um and i think that might speak to to why this uh uh, he is not perhaps being um, celebrated in, in quite the same way. So I think it's part policy, part charisma. Thank you, Francis. And Dom, I thought you just had one thought on that. Yeah, well, just to follow up there on what Francis was saying, I mean, I mean, we should not forget the huge, I mean, colossal financial support and the military support that the US have made, uh, which wouldn't have happened if, if Biden didn't want it to happen. So you know, he, sh- he he deserves the credit there but i think what's i think what's happened here is is that almost for each step each each great step forward there's each great step has, has just slightly been tainted and it seems to be that that taint that is remembered so for example high mars the um the high mobility artillery rocket system the the long range multiple launch rocket systems that that have that are just starting to uh the pledges to supply these things to Ukraine, it was just uh, just coming in. The training started in Grafenvir last week in the US uh, US uh, training um, Ukrainian forces. But for for months now, Ukraine have been asking for long range artillery, and um, and the West have prevaricated in in to greater or lesser degree. Okay, the, some some villains of the piece and, and others not. So finally, America gives the lead, and and I don't think the rest of them. So the Britons, British, we. We're supplying four, I think, M270 multiple launch rocket systems. So I don't think that would have happened if the US hadn't shown the lead. Um, so so US shows shows leadership, stumps up the cash, comes up with the weapons, and and supplies supplies four. When people were saying, "Well, wow, hang on, four? What have you missed a zero off the end or something?" I mean, what, what's going on here? Only only four. And so I think the 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 sort of clappy hand emoji hooray we're finally doing something and they're going to get high mars is somewhat dented and the gloss is taken off it slightly with people then going what is that it you know that's that's crazy and so the the um celebratory manner of it and the and the well done i think uh, i think are you, you move over them too quickly and i think biden's done that time and time again he's made 
we've talked on here about a, cu- a couple of comments he's made that were they gaffes or were they were they just just um, mistakes or on uh, were they actually part of some master diplomatic plan? Um, you know, but but they've all been slightly qualified. All these great successes, and I just wonder if that's if that's the issue here. And I take Francis's point about about charisma and um, uh, oratorial skills, <laughs> of which I'm displaying none right now. For, I apologise. Um, and I, I think maybe maybe as we go on, I think the next round of, of weapon pledges, if there are going to be some, I, I think there will be, I think then we'll see uh, there's another opportunity for for Biden to get to get the plaudits that that I think he does deserve, um, and that we that we often overlook. But but it does come down to a lot of it comes down to numbers, um, and yeah, when you can when you can physically point to four of these things and go, is that, is that it? Um, I think that takes away the 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 headline that, that might otherwise have been there. Um, if I could just pick up on that, I think Tom is absolutely right. I mean, we should be very much um, praising the, the the extent of of, of, of American support. And um, so, I, my remarks are only really commenting on why to the listeners' question why he hasn't perhaps got that recognition. As I say, I think there are many factors for that. Um, I think just as another reason, slightly broader, is that that may well have, have, have played to this lack of sort of more, more obvious examples of recognition is I think if we, we look at, I, I mentioned President Reagan during the Cold War, he framed many conflicts, um, one might say proxy wars, or at the very least, um, uh, the, the sort of policies of the, of the, of the, of the Soviet Union in that era, uh, as being existential. You know, he, he, he defined these things as being essential uh, wars for, for freedom that every democracy and freedom-loving country needed to be get behind. And he really led, you know, he led the free world, one could argue. Um, and, and I think that there is just not quite that sense that, that this is his number one focus in the case of Joe Biden. It's not quite that sense that even though he's made overtures to this kind of idea, it doesn't feel quite as existential as perhaps it did the Cold War. Maybe, of course, that's partly because he doesn't really think it is quite as existential as during the Cold War. And, and, and you know, bear in mind that I think that's probably a, a fair summary to some extent. Um, although I think that the, the danger in the case of Ukraine is that if uh, if Vladimir Putin perceives that he is able to get away with um, uh, with, with with, uh, with war in Ukraine and is perceived to be able to get certain advantages, that it will become existential because many other autocratic countries like China will watch that um, and think there are lessons to learn. And of course, maybe Russia in the future as well. So um, we may not be there yet, but I think that it should be treated as existential. But anyway, that's that's the point. So that's by the point. The, the, the central point being that um, it was that the, the, the Cold War was became something where where America was was seen to be leading from the front, and people really listened as a as a sort of. Uh, Glo- it saw America as a global as a global force in this fight, and it just doesn't quite feel that this is being seen in, in quite the same way and in quite the level same level of seriousness. And so, I think that's possibly got a role here too. Well, thank you very much, Francis, and thank you, Dom. Um, I think probably our time is up for today. So, can I just get quickly your final thoughts? What should our listeners be looking out for in the days ahead? I would keep an eye on Isium and see whether or not this supposed reconstituted force russian force is actually able to do anything if it's able to get over the river and start pushing south and if it can keep going i think that will be serious i don't think that's going to be possible but um yes we need we need to keep an eye on that because that that 
I think is the is the last gasp of this of this current phase of the war from Russia, and it would it would be uh, illuminating to see what Ukraine is able to do about it. I would just echo that and and say to continue thinking about this as a conflict that has. Uh, needs to be considered in terms of less in terms now of, of short-term military successes or defeats for either side and more in terms of this becoming more of a long attritional war for the reasons that we've spoken about earlier this week and and we as think as uh, as as sort of observers of this conflict um uh, must be sensitive to the fact that there will be certain days where things cannot seem to be as um uh, as, as you know, progress can seem slow um and 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 we just need to be sensitive to that and and as dom said um earlier this week you know we're not going anywhere um but we've just got to hope that that, that the world too keeps its eyes and keeps its focus on a conflict that that may change in nature um and and sort of slow down and become more attritional um but we would be totally wrong to lose focus on it because it, that is exactly what Vladimir Putin Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.